Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, it's a delight to be with you all this evening. Thank you very much, Zach, and the members of the Thomistic Institute chapter for inviting me to continue your focus on uh, the philosophical psychology of the human person. It's a particular pleasure to be with you today, as it was 749 years ago today that St. Thomas Aquinas died and his soul entered the glory of heaven. I will present to you a Thomistic account of the passions, which are a kind of emotion and ways that they can serve the moral life. Passions include love, hatred, joy, sorrow, hope, despair, and anger. I'll provide accounts of each of these, as well as some other passions, and we'll focus in more detail on a few. I'm using the term passions instead of emotions following Thomas Aquinas, and because I wish to avoid claiming the two are strictly identical, I also didn't want the advertised title to include passions, lest folks get the wrong idea about what this talk is about. It's about the emotions. I'll start by giving you a Thomistic account of the passions in general. This part's the most conceptually difficult, so hang in there and take heart. It'll help you understand the practical applications later. Second, I'll explain the 11 fundamental passions for Aquinas. And third, we'll examine some ways in which passions serve the moral life. At the start, I want to acknowledge a debt to a teacher of mine. In graduate school, my wife and I studied with a man named Robert Miner, who taught us Aquinas and the Passions. And through that study, we learned how to read Aquinas carefully and to appreciate the power of his account and to begin to think in a Thomistic way. Uh, Miner significantly influenced my understanding of the Passions, so they're particularly dear to me because they were my inroads in encountering Aquinas. So let's now turn to the passions in general. For Aquinas, the passions are movements of the sense appetite in response to an object apprehended as good or evil with a corresponding bodily change. I'll explain each part of this definition, starting with the notion of the sense appetite. The word sense likely reminds you of your senses. Aquinas has in mind both our external senses, that is the five senses of sight, taste, touch, smelling, and hearing, and internal senses, which include, among other things, our memories and imagination. These are cognitive powers or parts of our capacity to apprehend the world. The word appetite 
is not referring specifically to your hunger before eating dinner, which some of you may feel now. Instead, it refers to the part of us that responds with desire, aversion, hope, or fear to what we sense or imagine, for example. So it's part of the part of you that responds with the desire upon smelling roasted coffee in the morning, if you like coffee. Aquinas' psychology includes a division between apprehensive powers, what we might call cognitive capacities, on the one hand, and appetitive powers on the other. Appetitive powers are activated by apprehensive powers. Aquinas' principle that you cannot love what you do not know illustrates this point. Unless you know in the sense of apprehending something, at least to some extent, then you cannot love or desire it. Your love waits to be activated by your senses. The term passion reflects this, for the word implies that passions are passive in a sense. Uh, in the sense that they need to be awakened by something external to them. What we apprehend, then, activates our passion. I'll now, now say more about this apprehension, or I'll say more about this apprehension below, but now I want to turn to this notion of movement. The passions are movements of the sense appetite. In what sense are they movements or motions? They're not movements in the way you move your body when walking. Although Aquinas may want you to think about motion in this sense as a metaphor for how some of the passions operate, they can pull us towards something or push us away from it. The sense of movement he has in mind here is alteration and change. It may seem strange to our ears to associate the word movement or motion with alteration, for we tend to think of local motion, but alteration is a more general meaning of the term motion for Aquinas and for Aristotle, for that matter, who he follows. The passions, then, are alterations, changes in the sense appetite. Now I will return to how the sense appetite is moved by an apprehension. To explain, I'll introduce the idea of an intentional object. For the sense appetite is moved in the sense of altered by intentional objects presented to a person via his or her apprehensive powers. I'm getting to examples soon. Let me illustrate the term Intentional object. Suppose you own a pet wolf named Luna. And you and Luna are walking in the hills. She's first to reach the top of a hill you're climbing. And you look up at Luna and are pleased at the sight of her strength and beauty against the blue sky. Unbeknownst to you, on the other side of the hill is a small group of sheep. When they see Luna... They are filled with fear. Both of you and the sheep, both you and the sheep see Luna. She is what Aquinas calls the material object of your and the sheep's senses of sight. However, you perceive Luna as pleasing to behold, while the sheep perceive Luna as fearful to behold. These different passions the pleasure, and the fear are a result of two different intentional objects, or what Aquinas will call a formal object. You and the sheep apprehend Luna differently, which is what generates your pleasure on the one hand and the sheep's fear on the other. A sheep is intrinsically, or excuse me, instinctually wired to perceive wolves as threats, 
And so they'll typically experience fear when they see a wolf. They do this because of an apprehensive power that Aquinas following Aristotle, Aristotle calls their estimative power. This apprehensive power applies intentions to what is sensed through their external senses. So in this case, they, they see the wolf and they imply the intention of threat. And that, and that causes fear in them. In human beings, this power is called our cogitative power. It enables you to see a juicy steak and find it pleasing to perceive when you're hungry, and yet later find it painful to perceive because you've entered a steak-eating contest and you're way past your limit, but you're bound and determined to finish that. Luna and the wolf or Luna the wolf and the stake are examples of material objects that are known through the senses. Luna as a threat and the stake as pleasurable are intentional or formal objects that are perceived through the estimative and the cogitative powers. Passions result from our perceiving material things under these intentional aspects, such as pleasurable or fearful. Note, these apprehensions are not judgments but they're ways of perceiving. Aquinas doesn't think that passions are judgments, but they do result from our apprehending or perceiving objects in specific ways. In the next section of the talk, we'll see how the individual passions are distinguished by their respective formal objects and the movements that they involve. Earlier, I said that the sense appetite is altered by intentional intentional objects presented to the person via his or her apprehensive powers. In addition to your cogitative power, your memory also presents you with intentional or formal objects. In addition to your five senses, your imagination also supplies material objects. So our imaginations and memories are also the source of passions in addition to what we sense externally. A moment's reflection confirms that we experience passions by what we think about in addition to what we sense externally. Recall your favorite Christmas dessert. Really form a clear image of it, and you'll likely arouse desire to taste it. In summary, your external sensation and imagination provide the sensible data for passions, and your memory and cogitative power applies intentions resulting in a perception that moves your sense appetite and gives rise to passion. Now that we understand intentional objects, also known as formal objects, we need to understand more the intentional or formal aspects under which we perceive things in the case of the passions. All of the passions involve the perception of something as sensibly good or evil. When I say good and evil, I don't want you to think of good in the sense of superheroes and saints or evil in the sense of supervillains, good and evil in this case refer to what is sensibly pleasurable and painful, or painful. Our sense appetite draws us to sensible pleasure and pushes us away from pain. One of the reasons I mentioned the sheep above was to illustrate that both human beings and sheep experience passions because both are driven by pleasure and pain. Uh, In making... Yeah, although in the case of human beings, we can freely choose to ignore pleasure and pain in making choices. Well, sheep cannot. The reason for this is that we possess a higher rational appetite, a will, 
a rash and, and a higher rational apprehension that gives us the ability to transcend our passions and evaluate them before or after choosing to act. And we'll return to this later. The last part of the definition of passion is the corresponding bodily change. Aquinas is committed to passions involving physiological effects in us. For example, when angry at injustice, we don't simply perceive some injustice, but we feel our body prepare itself for aggressive action. This is illustrated by our common saying that, when so- that someone we are angry with makes our blood boil. Of course, our blood's not literally getting hotter, but the phrase reveals what it feels like to get angry. The passions involve a certain bodily response. Our hearts race with desire. We grow cold with fear. To conclude this section by returning to its beginning then and restating the definition, passions are movements in the sense of alterations of the sense appetite in response to an object apprehended as good or evil, that is as something sensibly pleasurable or painful with a corresponding bodily change. And you've got the definition on your handout if you want to come back to it. So that ends the most conceptually difficult part of talk. So now let's turn, uh, put this definition to work and turn to the individual passions. Aquinas identifies 11 fundamental passions. Love, hatred, desire, aversion, pleasure and joy, pain and sorrow, hope, despair, fear, daring, and anger. He thinks that these are the fundamental passions and that all other passions are combinations of these. These passions are divided into two sets. The first six are passions of the concupiscible part of the sense appetite. They're named after desire, that is, concupiscence. The final five are passions of the irascible part of the sense appetite. They're named after anger or ire. Aquinas divides the sense appetite into two parts, this concupiscible and irascible, on the basis of key differences between these two sets of passions. And understanding this division is key to understanding the individual passions. Concupiscible passions are moved by the sensible good or evil simpliciter or without qualification. The good or evil of the sense appetite without qualification is pleasure and pain. So all of these passions involve what is perceived as sensibly pleasant or painful as part of their formal object. That's what they're about. Irascible passions concern what is useful and harmful to attaining pleasure and avoiding pain. So irascible passions depend on concupiscible passion as their cause and serve them. Irascible passions are moved by the sensible good or evil that has the qualification of being difficult or arduous. The pursuit or avoidance of the good or evil is difficult when there are obstacles, whether external or internal, to the pursuit or the avoidance. The irascible passions, as their name suggests, are the fighting passions, and we associate them with our fight or flight response. These passions terminate in pleasure or pain, depending on whether the difficulty is overcome or avoided or not. 
Let's turn to the particular passions which will make this concrete. You'll find the formal objects and description of the movement for each of the passions in the tables on your handout. We'll begin with love. For Aquinas, all of the passions begin with the passion of love. Love is their source. This reflects his view that we and all creation are most fundamentally ordered to the good. Even hatred derives from love. Before proceeding, I note that we can speak of love in many ways. For example, we can also love apart from passion with the love of charity, which is when we will the good of another even when we don't feel like it. But here I focus on the passion of love. Love is the principle of all the other passions. As the principle, it is the source or the dispositional cause of other passions and their psychosomatic motions. This motion has two meanings. It primarily refers to the change or the alteration in the appetite caused by the apprehension of a thing as either pleasurable or painful. The passion of love exemplifies this motion. Love is activated by apprehending an object as pleasant and its motion consists in the agent's initial attraction to the object. Think of ordinary cases of physical attraction. But love is distinct from, though it gives rise to desire, and desire exhibits the second kind of motion as well. This is a motion toward the passion's object, in the case of desire, or away from the passion's object, in the case of aversion. For example, love of the pleasure of taste produced aversion when one senses something that's perceived as unpleasant to eat. For example, the sight of broccoli for one of my sons produces aversion. My son is repelled by the broccoli. His sense appetite moves him away from it. Love is also the cause of the irascible passions. For example, love of one's bodily comfort produces fear when one senses something that threatens pain or harm to one's body. What is love? Love is the inclination to motion of the sense appetite to what is sensibly pleasant. Love is caused by the apprehension of something as good in the sense of pleasant. Love gives rise to desire when that pleasant good is not present, whereas desire is the actual motion towards it. Desire moves us to seek after the good we do not yet possess. Think of your desiring to ask someone on a date. Pleasure, though, is the resting of the appetite in the present good. Pleasure is not the inactivity of the sense appetite, but is rather a form of active resting in the good. We enjoy the good and we don't want to stop enjoying it. This enjoyment is the completion of love. So think of her saying yes to your request. For the date. Notice that there's an order of generation between love, desire, and pleasure. Love gives rise to desire, which culminates in pleasure if you gain what you love. Inclination toward the good is necessary for desire for the good and rest in possessing the good. This order is symbolized on the back of your handout with arrows, and you can see the order of generation there in that first line. Like love, the passion of hatred is also an inclination. 
but it's an inclination away from what is perceived as evil. The formal object of hatred is an evil as sensibly painful. Returning to my example, my son hates broccoli. For Aquinas, evil is parasitic on good, and so what we find painful depends on what we find pleasant. What we hate depends on what we love. My son loves pleasurable food, but broccoli is unpleasant to him. Following the pattern of love, hatred gives rise to aversion, which culminates in pain or sorrow. Aversion is the actual motion of the sense of appetite away from the evil not yet present. Think of my son feeling averse to the prospects of being served broccoli. Pain or, pain or sorrow is like pleasure in that it's a resting of the appetite, but in this case, it's resting in an evil, a present evil. Think of the sadness my son experiences when chewing his broccoli. Unlike pleasure, we want this pain or sorrow to stop, and so does he. So these are the concupiscible passions. Let's turn now to the irascible passions, which are more complex. Irascible passions concern the difficult or arduous good or evil. A good or evil with the additional aspect of being either difficult to attain or difficult to avoid. Movements of the irascible power are for the sake of the concupiscible and rational appetite. To illustrate this view, consider the case of Edmund Hillary, the mountain climber. Hillary hoped to climb the mountain, which is a difficult good, in order to know his limits or earn bragging rights with his friends or merely take joy in having done it. His appetite cannot rest in the difficult good itself. Once the mountain has been conquered, the difficult aspect of it is gone. His hope ceases and is replaced by pleasure or joy. The good, say, of enjoying his accomplishment is not a difficult good. Uh, it's attained in virtue of attaining the difficult good of, having cl of climbing the mountain itself. The passion of hope is a motion toward a, or movement toward a future attainable but difficult good. This hope depends on a love for the good that is now difficult to attain by some circumstance. This difficulty leaves room for doubt about whether one will attain one's goal. The object is future in the sense that it's not yet possessed, but it's also seen as attainable even if attaining it is unlikely. It has to be seen as attainable. The mountain climber hopes to climb the difficult ascent, but recognizes that any number of things could prevent success. If the circumstances change and the good is seen as unattainable, then hope becomes despair. For despair is the motion away from a good seen as future, difficult, but unattainable. To illustrate, remember a time when your favorite team was playing their main rival. The score was close and they were exchanging points. When you sensed the momentum was shifting in favor of you your team, you felt hope. When you sensed it was shifting decisively in favor of their opponent, you felt despair. When the game ends, you will feel joy if what you hoped for was realized, and you will feel sorrow if what you despaired of was realized. Hope and despair end in joy or sorrow. This is because the aspect of future and of difficulty that is part of the intentional object of hope and despair is removed. 
What remains is the presence or absence of the good. While hope and despair concern a good, the next two passions concern something seen as evil. The passions of fear and daring concern a future but imminent threatening evil. Suppose you're hiking in the woods and you turn a corner and a mountain lion is standing on the path before you. Many of us would feel fear at seeing it. Fear is the appetitive movement away from a future but imminent threatening evil that's not apparently surmountable. Suppose you see the mountain lion as threatening and are not immediately sure how to respond. You see it as a future threat to you because it is not yet its future, a future threat because it has not yet sunk its teeth into your leg. But the threat is imminent. Depending on the intensity of your fear, your fear could paralyze you or it could helpfully focus your attention on the circumstances. Either way, it will result in your body's preparing itself for flight. Suppose you have some courage and neither run away screaming nor are paralyzed by fear. Instead, you start to think back to what you were told about how to handle a mountain lion. You look to see if it has cubs nearby and don't notice any. Suddenly, you remember what you should do. There's a shift in your perception of the situation, and your fear becomes daring. Now, you perceive the mountain lion as a future but imminent threatening evil that appears surmountable. You see it as a threat that, um, that, is a threat that you can overcome. Consequently, consequently, your passion of daring moves you toward confronting the threat rather than your appetite moving you away from it in the case of fear. You stand up tall and speak loudly to it to show you it's, you are not its prey. When it does not run, you throw rocks at its feet to threaten it away. It finally runs away and you continue your hike. You may have noticed a strange feature of daring and of daring. Daring involves a motion toward an evil. How can this be? We cannot be drawn to evil in itself for Aquinas. The irascible power, unlike the concupiscible power, though, can be drawn to a painful object. But this is only because the evil, for example, the painful shot, is considered useful to the good, for example, health, and not good as such or good in itself. In our illustration above, confronting the mountain lion, uncomfortable though it is, was seen as useful to the, avoid the threat of being physically harmed. We've discussed hope and despair, fear and daring, and now we'll turn to the last of the passions, anger. Anger is the attacking passion par excellence. Anger is caused by our perceiving someone to slight us or show contempt for us, which is a kind of harm. Anger's definition as a passion is the motion toward a present harmful evil, the attack of which is useful to attain the good of vindication. Like daring, anger involves the motion toward an evil. The evil in this case is the person who you perceive to have slighted you. Like daring, the motion toward confronting the evil is not done for its own sake, but in anger it is for the sake of the pleasure of vindication, of setting right the wrong that was done. Because anger involves perception of a slight, it involves our reason's ability to apprehend injustice. In anger, we perceive the slight as an unjust harm that we defend ourselves against through seeking vindication. Hence, anger moves us to confrontation 
and is accompanied by bodily effects that energize us for aggressive action. As you can tell, anger is complex. We'll discuss it more in the next section, to which I now turn. Now, I will address the ways the passions serve the moral life, and then look at concretely, then look concretely at ways the emotions of anger and envy impact the moral life. By the moral life, I mean the good life, the life that leads us to our fulfillment given the kind of beings we are. Our fulfillment comes through the steady following of the right judgment of our reason and the consequent habituation of our character towards what is good. This habituation process results in our becoming good and so living a more fulfilled life. To have a good character is to have the virtues, which are good habits of our mind, will, and passion. For Aquinas, this good life has a supernatural orientation. It consists ultimately of a union of friendship with God in heaven. God infuses the virtues needed for reaching this happy end. For Aristotle, this good life has a natural orientation. It consists in the activity of virtue in this life in a community of friends. These virtues come through a process of habituation of our own doing. For either of you, having well-formed passions is a very important part of the good life. Aristotle famously notes or noted in his Nicomachean Ethics that almost the whole of the education of the young consists in helping them to take pleasure at what is good and pain at what is bad. What is good is what genuinely fulfills us and leads to our individual and communal flourishing. What is bad is contrary to our genuine fulfillment and our individual and community or communal flourishing. Well-formed passions contribute to our genuine flourishing. The claim that passions should be well-formed implies that they can be ill-formed as well. And this is true. That we are emotional beings is an important and very good thing about us, but our passions are not infallible. We can evaluate them, and they don't always pass muster. Sometimes our anger or pleasure or fear is misplaced. How do we evaluate our passions? If, for example, we want to evaluate a pleasure, we ask whether the satisfaction of the desire that leads to it was good. If my desire for multiple servings of dessert is contrary to my health and my own judgment about how much I to eat, then acting on that desire and taking pleasure in eating more than I should is bad for me. Doing so will produce pleasure in the eating, but also pain when I remember that it was contrary to my health and prior choice. I'll experience conflict within myself, which I should seek to avoid. In the case of fear, sometimes our fears are more intense than the threat warrants. We sometimes are aware of this and with great effort act contrary to our fear. This is good for us and helps us to form well our passion of fear so that it is more appropriate with respect to that threat. One wise maxim, as old as the hills, is that we should know ourselves. Our character is partly comprised of the good or bad habits of our passions. Our passions are a barometer for our character. A cheerful giver, for example, is a person who takes joy in giving. That person's pleasure in giving is a sign of good character in that respect. 
provided they're giving not simply to get pleasure. We must come to know the habits of our own passions if we wish to live a good life. This requires correcting them when they are in error and cultivating them to be good. Aquinas uses a political analogy to illustrate his view of this cultivation. We must rule our passions not as despots, but as a political ruler with the best intentions for his or her subjects and with the desire for their fulfillment and contribution to the good of the community. Some can be tempted to think that the passions are to be crushed underfoot, for they cause us much trouble and suffering. This line holds that it's best to eliminate the passions as much as possible. But contrary to this view, Aquinas holds that while the passions may be unruly or anemic citizens, we want to temper or strengthen them to promote our own good. To crush them will rob us of the ways the passions can contribute to our flourishing. How can they contribute? Passions serve the moral life by energizing our good actions. much easier to work longer on something we enjoy than something we find painful. Passions also increase the moral goodness of our actions for Aquinas. This view may be unfamiliar, and so I'll explain, explain it briefly. Aquinas thinks that rather than simply doing what is good without passion, it's sometimes morally better, after rationally judging what is good to do, to initiate a passion to energize that action. For example, if you reasonably judge that it would be good to give to a poor person before feeling a passion, it would be better to do so with compassion rather than a passionless way. By initiating passions appropriate to the good action which we intend, we choose to harness our emotional energy to better execute our actions. And that's praiseworthy. How do we initiate passions? By controlling what we sense or imagine. By focusing our attention in the right kinds of ways, we can either initiate passions or diminish, diminish passions that we feel. For example, you can increase hope by focusing on the attainability of your goal. We can produce pleasure by remembering a good conversation with a friend, and so on. When passions are in good order, they produce psychological integrity. We are able to wholeheartedly act without being torn this way and that by our passions. Consequently, well-formed passions also enable us to enjoy living well, taking pleasure in what is good, and enjoying it with psychological integrity. Passions, though, can also hinder the moral life. Passions can disrupt our reason's judgments, as experience readily attests. Passions also diminish our voluntariness in action when they pressure us to act, as our legal distinction between crimes of passion and premeditated crimes attests. For example, if a person is provoked to anger and strikes another person, they're still responsible for doing it, but less responsible than if they had planned to assault them without the prompting of anger. Let's now consider in more detail the role of anger and envy in the moral life. Anger is a passion that, perhaps surprisingly, is essential to the moral life. Envy is a passion that, perhaps surprisingly, is always inimical to the moral life. In the history of philosophy, anger is a controversial passion. The Stoics, for example, thought it best that we were rid of it. They thought so because anger clearly hinders our judgment 
to which I think everyone would attest. How does it do so? Anger focuses our attention on the one who slighted us or on someone we care for and impels us to seek vindication through punishing the wrongdoer and restoring justice. This focusing effect obscures our ability to see the situation as a whole. The phrase that one is blind with rage is apt. Perhaps our lives would be better without anger entirely. Aquinas disagrees. Anger is natural to us, and so Aquinas assumes there must be good forms of anger, even if much anger is excessive or misplaced. One reason anger is natural to us is that it helps us to defend ourselves and to energetically seek the restoration of justice through the righting of wrongs. Aquinas thinks, in fact, that it is bad for us not to experience anger in certain situations. For that reveals a lack of concern for our own good or for justice that we ought to have. Let's suppose Aquinas is correct, that anger generally is natural and good. Nonetheless, anger is certainly the cause of much destruction in our lives. Let's look in more detail at how it hinders the moral life. We'll then return to how it serves it in more detail. Anger is the desire for vindication. In other words, the desire to punish a wrongdoer who slighted us so as to restore justice. Anger is about restoring justice when we or people we care about have not been treated as they deserve. But anger goes wrong when the anger itself is unjust. Given this account, we can be angry about the wrong things. We can be too angry. We can be too easily angered, angry at the wrong person, and angry for too long. We should distinguish between improper anger on the one hand as a passion and acting on the basis of that anger on the other. We focused on the passion. Anger can go wrong when it results from perceiving a slight or an injustice when there is not one. For example, if a person is driving the speed limit on a road ahead of you and there's no passing lane and you're late for a meeting, they've done nothing to slight you. Anger has gone wrong here if you feel it. Anger can go wrong when we perceive the slight to be greater than it actually is. For example, a person interrupts you while speaking in an informal setting. This is a slight. But if a person were to blow up in anger over it happening once, that person's anger is excessive. Their anger suggests that the other has done something worse than they actually have and is due a punishment worse than they deserve. The angry person is too angry about the slight given how minor it is. We might think that a person who is interrupted should not be angry at all, perhaps, given the slightest minor. Anger can go wrong when a person is too easily angered. Being too easily angered results when a person habitually perceives slights when they do not occur and so takes offense. Being easily offended is not good for us, our relationships, or our communities. Anger can go wrong when we attribute a slight to the wrong person. Then we are angry at a person who does not deserve it. For example, a student's angered his roommate because he assumed it was his roommate who left the room a complete mess when in fact it was a neighbor playing a joke on him. This also happens when you're angry about something else and then someone says something very small and all of your anger gets poured out on that one person, right? That's, they're, they're really not the person you're angry at. You're angry at this other thing. Anger can go wrong when we cling to it and hold a grudge. Such anger often grows and turns into resentment, which poisons us more than it helps us to right the wrong. Anger also hinders the moral life 
when it, attempt, when it tempts us to execute punishment when it's not our place to do so. Vigilante justice is when a person seeks to punish a wrongdoer by making himself an authority outside the rules of law. Doing so may be permitted in special cases, but that judgment should not be made when a person is angry. The passion of anger can tempt us to go beyond what justice requires and seek punishment that exceeds the crime. Anger can also tempt us to hate the person who has slighted us and wish for their ruin rather than simply their just punishment, which is for their good. Anger can tempt us to selfishness in seeking revenge when we are motivated more by the pleasure of being the one who meets out punishment than by the restoration of justice. Aquinas remarks that one of the principal effects of anger is pleasure, which may surprise you, or not. The imagined future vindication can be sweet, sweeter than honey, says Homer. Anger serves the moral life when it's about the right thing, in the right amount, regarding the right person, and is not too easily provoked. Anger serves the moral life when we don't get angry immediately, but make a clear judgment about the situation upon considering all the relevant facts. Then anger can energize a response as we seek just punishment to correct the wrong in accordance with law and for the sake of true justice. Finally, let's discuss envy. Envy is a passion, yet it's not on the list we discussed. Why not? Aquinas defines envy as a species of pain and sorrow. Before explaining further, I want to note that today people might say that they're envious of a person in order to compliment them on the desirability of something that person has. For example, we might say, I'm so envious of the trip you took to the mountains. When what we're saying uh, is that the trip looked great and we'd want to have a trip like that too. This is, not the en- this is not envy for Aquinas. Envy is different. It's always bad. It is sorrow at another's good. How can someone else's good or benefit cause a person's sorrow? It's because the envier perceives the other person's good as bad for herself. Envy is defined as sadness or pain at the good of another, insofar as the good of another is perceived as an evil, namely as an obstacle to one's own excellence. Let me illustrate. If my classmate gets the highest test score, on the test, then I lose in the contest for having the highest score. If my teammate wins my position on the team, then I lose out on my position. If my colleague makes a great discovery, then maybe I won't be admired as the star researcher, and so on. All of these can be the occasion for envy. There is another passion that looks like envy but is not envy. Aquinas distinguishes envy from zeal which is the passion wherein I feel sad that I don't have some good thing another person does. For example, I might be pained that I didn't get the highest score, win the position, or make the great discovery, but I could still rejoice that the other person got it. I could still want what is good for them and be pleased with them getting the good thing, even while feeling pain that I did not get it. This passion of zeal can be good, but it's not envy. For the passion of envy rules out that feeling of pleasure at the other's good. It's defined as pain at the other's good, not pain at my failing to get the good. 
In fact, the envier feels pleasure when the one envied loses the good, even if they don't get it. This is what makes envy bad and contrary to the moral life. For the moral life requires that I have basic goodwill for others and seek to take pleasure in their good. Envy excludes taking pleasure in another's good and tempts me to ill will. We can appreciate envy's badness by thinking about its effects on friendship. Friends ought to love one another, and that includes both feeling love for each other and willing each other's good. But envy is the feeling contrary to feeling love for them, and it tempts us to will that their good be taken from them. Envy attacks the love that's the basis of friendship. A friendship characterized by envy will be unstable and threatened to that extent. Aquinas suggests a moral or spiritual degeneration pattern occurs if envy is left unchecked. Envy can give rise to anger at a person because I misperceive that their good is somehow an injustice against me. Like improper envy, excuse me, like improper anger, envy can give rise to hatred for a person. If I envy a person for beating me to the prize, I may start desiring bad things to happen to them more generally. Envy can lead to pleasure in a person's misfortunes even beyond the particular competition I lost to them. Envy is toxic to friendship and community in general. Why do we feel envy? It can result from several things. Our love for ourself may have become too invested in winning the prize in question. Our love for ourself may be too tied to our favorably stacking up in comparison to others. We may have failed to cultivate love for others. Each of these involved certain failures with respect to love, either disordered love for ourselves or insufficient love for another. Envy is a sorrow and a pain, and given our nature, we desire to repel sorrow and pain. But we should not do so in the way envy points us, which is to seek to take away or diminish the good of another person. Instead, we should seek to repel the sadness by focusing on the good of the other, and especially those goods that we can share with him or her. Let me conclude with a few remarks about love. The principle of the passion. To pursue the moral life and the perfection of our passions, we must pay special attention to the character of our loves. For the habits of our love give rise to all the other passions. If we love well, then we will find our other passions easier to cultivate. If we, love, uh, if we love poorly, then we will find the other passions resistant to our efforts to improve them. For example, consider one's own comfort. To be comfortable is good. But if I love my comfort too much, I will desire it excessively, take excess, excessive pleasure in having it, and take needless risks to protect it. If I love my own comfort too much, I will have excessive aversion to things that bring discomfort, will have excessive fear of things that threaten my comfort, and will be wrongly angry at the one who causes me discomfort. Not only that, but excessive love and the passions it gives rise to will dispose me to hold my own comfort in too high esteem. It will tempt me to neglect to make daring ventures in pursuit of higher goods that might threaten that comfort. 
One such daring venture is the pursuit of the moral life with its sacrifices and self-denial. But its rewards are rich, for it rewards us with happiness. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.